Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Today, we're super excited to have Audrey Carlson with us. I'd like to just introduce Audrey. In the aftermath of tragedy and loss, can there be a path to happiness and peace? It is possible to find your joy, to laugh, to open your heart again, to trust and learn, to thrive again, as opposed to merely surviving. Can a person choose happiness when everything around you is falling apart? These are the questions that swirled endlessly in my heart, in my mind, after the death of our beautiful daughter, Elizabeth. How did I move from barely surviving to choosing happiness? It was not easy. I needed answers to the many questions and chose as a lifelong learner to return to graduate school in 2008 to pursue a master's of arts degree in experiential health and healing under the mentorship of Dr. Bernie Siegel. I immersed myself in the business of healing. In 2014, I received certification in positive psychology with Tal Ben-Shahar and launched the Hartford Happiness Club, providing free monthly meetings with speakers who come to share stories and their wisdom about creating the life you most want to live. In 2002, my husband Bruce and surviving daughter Leslie established the Elizabeth Ann Carlson Performing Arts Foundation, providing scholarships to Connecticut college-bound students pursuing the performing arts. We also provide free musical theater audition workshops every fall to Connecticut high school students taught by Broadway credentialed teachers. Audrey lives in Newington, Connecticut with her husband, Bruce, of 45 years and her two standard poodles, Max and Ricky. Please help me welcome Audrey to the Be Brave podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Audrey, and sharing how you've overcome losing your daughter to a tragic death. Also, you know, we had to reschedule this interview because right before we were scheduled to do this back in January, I think it was, you were diagnosed with cancer. And I'm excited to know that you're on the other side of it and you're now considered a cancer survivor as well. Thank you. Yes, I have to uh, first thank you for inviting me to be part of your world and your podcast and, and all the work that you do. And uh, it's, uh, I'm delighted to be here this evening. I have uh, learned how to uh, be redirected, as one would say, when life throws you uh, different challenges, or perhaps when the wind is knocked out of your sails, or you, you go in for your routine GYN checkup, and the doctor says, gee, I think you've got a fibroid. I said, never had a fibroid. And through all the diagnostics and the, the blood tests and all the MRIs, it revealed two large masses the size of um, giant ruby red grapefruits. So it, it turned out uh, it's crazy how life, uh, you know, hands you lemons and you turn them into lemonade, right? Well, it turned out if you can just imagine two large ruby red grapefruits that 
you don't know you're going into surgery, what they're going to find. Because one of the blood tests revealed that it was 30% malignant and 70% obviously benign. And I said, let's go with that benign. So that's how I've gone through life. Let's look at the other side. It's not even how the glass is filled. It's empty. It's full. You always look for, you know, until I know really, truly what we're dealing with here, it was crazy, even though I was unsettled and I didn't know what the uncertainty, certainly. However, I went into surgery and I had the surgery in Manhattan because we couldn't get into a hospital soon enough here in Connecticut. Our daughter, Leslie, is a um, the head PA in the neurosurgery group in Manhattan. And she said, give me an hour and I'll tap into my resources here and we're going to get, get you all taken care of. So I had my consult and my surgery within five days. So I went into surgery, not knowing what these masses were going to be, but I put my faith into believing that whatever it was, we're going to figure it out. Well, it turned out the masses were indeed benign. However, much like you would open a big giant peach, there's a peach pit and those peach pits were clear cell carcinomas, ovarian cancer, encapsulated and localized. So my body protected me. They took out these giant benign masses, found absolutely no uh, diagnostic concerns where there was any metastases in the lymph nodes or any fluids. My body was scanned clear. They took out these masses. They sent everything to the lab. We agreed on a full hysterectomy because, you know, they can all go to the lab or to wherever they go, these organs in, in ovarian heaven, wherever it is. And um, I had the surgery January 25th. I had my last chemo just uh, two weeks ago. And Friday, I go in for my scans to be reassured that everything is indeed fine. And it was quite a roller coaster. And all the while, I have to be honest with you, I, I, I believe many of us are blessed with this innate gift of resilience. And many of us have this happy gene. And I've always had faith that whatever the problem is, we're going to figure it out. Even though I don't know how we're going to navigate through, I trust the process. And that's really the theme of my life. Wow. So awesome. That is fantastic. Audrey, I got, first of all, two things. Number one, I want to read the quote to you that we always read to our guests. And then I want to comment on what you just said. And this quote, we found this on Facebook one day, and we it's not attributed to anybody. I don't know. We don't know who said this, but we loved it. And this is why we do what we do here on this podcast. One day you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. So we're, inter we're really interested in all of your story. But as far as you always believing that there was that you're going to you're going to find your way through and it's going to be okay. I did not grow up that way. I have the propensity to go to the negative, not necessarily freak out, but be like, "Oh no." And if you tell me it's 50% something else or even 30% chance of being malignant, I'll be, "Oh no." And it freaks me out. And I have I really try hard to, and it's an exercise. It, it's really a mental exercise. And we did have a guest on our show who's a scientist who talked about this, but it's an exercise to try and, and go in the positive direction. And it, it amazes me that some people have more pro propensity to be that way than others. It's not probably not as much of a, an exercise for you, although it does take, you know, practice for all of us. It does. And we, we all have 
a tendency to catastrophize things. You take a situation and you somehow snowball it into what what could happen. And when I learned what happened, you know, with with my results that there was certainly a problem, I said, but what is the problem? What what am I to worry about? What what are we really dealing with here? And I didn't know. So fortunately, even though I had, I was very unsettled and I was um, concerned, I didn't lose sleep over it. I didn't make myself crazy. I just said to the doctor, you know, I just trust you and whatever it is you've got to do, you're going to do, and we're going to figure it out because I know I have a long life ahead of me. And this is just going to add to my story, whatever it might be. Then I also said, I'm 68 years old, and this is my first health problem. I've gone 68 years in what I would regard as in excellent health. Then I say, very much like I've threaded through everything else in my life, I look at what I have not what I don't have. And I look at what I can do, not what I can't. And there's going to be a lot more that will be thrown my way where I will be unable to do certain things that I hope I can still do. Like when I broke my knee, that's an incredible story. Can I just divert a little bit? All right. So this is an incredible story. And it's, and, and it was when I was in graduate school, there's a gentleman that I think we all know, and his name is Dr. Larry Dossie. Dr. Larry Dossie wrote a book called Be Careful What You Pray For, You Just Might Get It. I had seen him at Yale. He was a speaker. He was marvelous. And I got his book and I skimmed through the book because I said, I know this stuff. I know the power of intention. You become your words. If you get up and say it's going to be a crappy, cloudy, miserable day, you're going to have a crappy, cloudy, miserable day. But if you get up and you say, it's going to be a great day, I'm going to need the resilience when I need it. I'm going to have the strength when I need it. I need calm here. I need strength here. I need patience here. Generally speaking, you get what you put out there, right? Well, it all went out the window one day. My husband uh, at that time was diagnosed with prostate cancer. So my daughter, the same daughter, Leslie, the only daughter, who's the PA at Mount Sinai in Manhattan, was in urology at the time, you know, at the from below the belly button. Now she's at the control center. She's doing brain surgery now. Anyway, so Bruce went in to have his surgery in Manhattan. And then we had to go back a few weeks later for his follow-up. I was at the time working as a dental hygienist and we were going into, it was like late January. And I needed, I had this unsettledness again about, I had some guilt. I had some guilt and I was unsettled because we were going into spring and it was going to be uh, the anniversary of Elizabeth's murder. And I wanted to have a fundraiser. And I kept thinking to myself, you have three months to put together a fundraiser and pull it all together and make sense of it all. So as I'm walking across the street to my car, I I talked to God a lot. I said, you know, um, I got this problem. And I really need, uh, I need uh, some guidance here. The problem is I need what the words that I used in my head were, what's it going to take for me to sit still long enough to put together this big fundraiser in the spring when the daffodils come up and make it really lovely to honor her and to do the right thing. Hop in the car, go with Bruce. We drive to Manhattan and we're crossing the street to the hospital and I slipped. I slipped in the road. It wasn't icy, but the road was frozen. And all I did was slip. And the only part of my body that actually hit the pavement was my patella, my kneecap. So obviously it fractured in half. One half went to the tibia, the other one. It was just 
um, uh, and I had just signed up for the um, new, um, the marathon. <laughs> oh boy, so, that ain't happening. <laughs> so I'm laying in the middle of the road on um, in front of the hospital. And what's across the street? An ambulance. So Bruce stops traffic. He signals them to come over. And at that point, you're not in shock. You're just kind of like not sure what exactly has happened. You're, you haven't even processed what happened. And Bruce says, this is not good. So I said, before we get into the emergency room, I better call uh, my boss, Gary Millinger, and tell him I'm not going to be in on Monday. He's, so the ambulance uh, EMT says, you're not going to be in for a lot of Mondays. And I said, that can't possibly be. And he said, your knee is broken. Wait, here's, here's the part that I want to get to. They roll me into the emergency room and Dr. Colvin comes in, this lovely woman, uh, orthopedic, and she holds my hand and she says, please tell me you have a project that you need to work on for about three months. You're going to be homebound. So at this point, before they even give me morphine, <laughs> all right? Before they give me morphine, I'm crying and laughing all at the same time because I can't, I can't, I'm, what is happening here? And so I told her what I just told you about what I put out there. And I said, what's it going to take for me to sit still for three months? I have a giant project to do. She said, did you ever read Larry Dossie's book, Be Careful What You Ask For? Or Be Careful What You Pray For, You Just Might Get It? I said, I do, I didn't do it right. So she said, what you didn't do was put clear concise language around it. What you need to do is always say, keep me safe away from harm and then ask for what you want. <laughs> always keep yourself safe first. I said, I didn't do that. She said, I know. Just so she says, well, now you're homebound. And it was, it was crazy because that was a turning point in my life on another level because I had all the tools in my toolbox. I had just done my graduate work. I had studied all the things that I needed to navigate through life. And yet being a lifelong learner, as we all are, hopefully, I was still learning how to slow down my life, how to eat mindfully, because I had to walk incrementally in millimeters and I had no business eating what I would normally eat if I wasn't expending energy. So doing absolutely nothing for 12 weeks, I lost 15 pounds by just eating half portions and eating anti-inflammatory diet and being very mindful with my day and looking at things very differently and being very appreciative that this was a lesson that needed to be learned. And I could hear my grandmother say, Audrey, could have been worse. You could have broken both knees. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's cute. I like that. That may be where you got your positive outlook from. Yeah. I don't know. All all I all I do know is that I believe that I was blessed with uh, the innate gift of being positive and looking at life that way, and also trusting the process for whatever, however I can explain it to you. Even when I was twelve, you know, um, I grew up with two brothers. And one of them used to beat me up and pull my ponytail and be mean to me because he was fresh. And I grew up on, with all boy cousins on an all boy street. And so I started talking to my mother and my father at a young age and saying, you know, you can fix this. <laughs> <laughs> you can fix this. You can foster a little girl. I want a sister. And I said, you could get a foster. You can get, uh, we can get a, um, a foreign exchange student. You know, long before we had Google or any of that, I, I, I said, Anytime, just get me a sister. And my mother said, you have two brothers and that is it. Just be grateful you have two brothers. I said, I'm So then I started to not even understand God, but 
But reaching out, I said, you know, you really screwed me over. (laughs) I said, here's the deal. I'm going to let you make it up to me because one day, God willing, I'll be married and I want, I want a daughter. No, I want two. So they have each other. Let's flash forward. I meet Bruce. He came in as a patient. I cleaned his teeth and it was love at first bite. He had good teeth like a horse. I said, (laughs) four months later, we're married. And he tells me just before four months later. No, good for you. Wow. And it's 45, 45 years. Go yeah. for 45 years. You've been married. Good for yeah. you. That's incredible. Well, let me just tell you what happened. So we're, the relationship is getting serious. And he said, I'm 30 years old. My biological clock is ticking and I'm 22. And he said, I need you to know I've just before we met, I just finished up some radiation. I had testicular cancer and I don't believe we can have children because my sperm count got fried. I said, well, I'm not marrying you because you can make babies because we can adopt two daughters, right? So he said, okay, well, we go on this honeymoon on this uh, um, island in Tortola. And um, by the way, we got monsooned off the island. We never had a honeymoon because we had no food and no water. Oh, no. Pregnant. Oh, hey now. Came home pregnant. And, uh, you know, nine months later, along came Elizabeth and um, another year later, along came Leslie and he listened somewhere, something out there paid attention to what I really, really wanted. And we were blessed with the two daughters I always wished I had growing up as mom for me. So yes, we become our words. And I believe that I've learned to trust the process even on as a young kid, even though I didn't have the wisdom, the wherewithal to understand it all, I trusted it. What it was, I wasn't sure. So life was going on swimmingly well until it wasn't. And Elizabeth was 24. She had just graduated college. And uh, she, we, we went to the, our vet to bring our two poodles for their checkups. And the new young vet was there. And it was clearly something very special the way they looked at each other elizabeth and the new and the new young vet yeah the the way that the, they looked at each other not your two poodles and the new young vet <laughs> well the poodles always wag their tails okay, okay. okay and we'll talk all about later about wagging our tails <laughs> the relationship turned out to be a, a friendship and they became wonderful friends and after 2 years they decided to move in with each other and he became controlling. Elizabeth was not comfortable with his behavior and she moved back. Were they dating and romantically involved or just friends? Yes. For two years, for two years, for the, for, for quite a while, they were just friends because they were just coming out of old relationships, leaving his, he was leaving his respective veterinarian school in Kansas state. uh, And uh, he was working nearby and Elizabeth had just graduated college, 24 and 30 years old difference. So it started out just as a, a lovely friendship. He's an only child and uh, he became very controlling and she moved home and we sat down as a family with him, Jonathan. And we said, listen, this is not working. You've got to extract all the good out of the relationship and move forward. And he just couldn't accept it. And that was in February. And then it was May 22nd. We're coming up on 20 years. Wow. Wow. May 22nd, 2002, he loaded his pockets with bullets, broke into our home. Somehow we don't know how, maybe just a key at the time he could have easily had a key and um, hid in our master bedroom bathroom. And when uh, Elizabeth came upstairs to 
get uh, a passport because they were going to go uh, away for the weekend. She and Elizabeth Leslie were going away for the weekend. Elizabeth was to start a nursing anesthesiology program that week. So it was the last weekend that she could have some fun and not think about the obligations that she would have for school. He came out of the master bedroom bathroom and basically point blank, point blank range just riddled her with bullets. Leslie got out of the house. He was caught on the corner by the police and basically said, if I can't have her, nobody can. Kind of like out of a Lifetime movie. Wow. So we were whirling and swirling and um, it wasn't real. This is the stuff you think happens to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, But we are those somebody else's, right? And a turning point in my life. I I know you were going to ask me some turning points in my life. In, In our family, we observe Shiva which is a Jewish tradition for one week, there is a mourning period where people come to your home and it, they make it, you make it real. You, you just are with people for a full week. Well, something happened that was, that validated what I wondered about. There's this invisible, intangible world called the, the spirit world. I didn't understand it. I had no reason to, to explore it, to understand something I can't see or feel or have any validated supported data to prove it's real until that day. It was that week people were coming and it was in the morning. All I wanted to do was get out of bed, not fall over, be able to walk to the bathroom, hold myself up and brush my teeth without falling over. And the screaming in my head was getting louder and louder. Where are you? I can't see you. Did it hurt? How many times? How long did it take for how many bullets did it take for you to die? And I'm screaming all of this in my head at the same time, trying to brush my teeth, tears running in my mouth. So I have salty tears mixed with gritty toothpaste, holding myself up. My knees are, are, aren't able to hold me up. They're, they're, they're um, falling. And the voice in my head got louder and louder. And then it happened. Her towel, her pink towel on the towel rack flew up in the air and landed at my feet. Wow. 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 I stopped dead in my tracks and the voice stopped. And I screamed to Leslie and to Bruce with the toothpaste all over my face, still holding myself up with this towel on the floor. And I said, come quick, come, come. And I repeated everything. Leslie said, mommy, she's saying I'm here. You're asking where she is. She's right here. She's never going to leave us. Never. Then I felt this voice come out of me. And the voice was Elizabeth's strength speaking for me. We held each other. And Leslie was crying. We're all just beyond. There are no words to describe raw grief. And I said, listen, I don't know how we're going to get through this. We're never going to get over this. This is never going to go away. However, we have choices here and now. Choice one is we are to never blame each other. We're never to point fingers at each other and say, we should have, could have done this, or why didn't we do this, or who didn't see this or that. If we do, we will lose each other, not just Elizabeth. We have a choice here and now to find our way together. How? I haven't got a clue. The second thing is, if we live, if we choose to live with this anger and hatred and bitterness and pain, he wins and Jonathan kills us all. Are we going to let Jonathan kill us all and live in this place of darkness where you never get out from under the bed and you're filled with this anger and this bitterness? Or are we going to just trust the process and figure it out? I don't have any answers. I don't know. I didn't know anything. I'd never been 
in a situation where I had a, a guidebook or anyone to even give me a road to follow. All I knew is that we couldn't handle the pain and we knew that we had to find a way together, but we also knew that we had to grieve our own way collectively together and alone and never to point fingers. And we never did. That's beautiful. We never did. And that was, and that was 20 years ago. And I have to tell you, did I understand a spirit world? Do I understand there's an energy, we're made of energy. And there's many, many examples. I can write a whole book on all of the experiences that I've had that won't make sense to anybody at all. However, my faith is unshakable. Whatever it is anybody believes in, there's something much bigger than all of us. And there's a process that we need to just trust it and understand that if you live with the anger and the bitterness, it will manifest into what we call dis-ease and it will take you down under. Yeah. So I can go right into the next part of what happened, or you can ask me a question. I want to pause there, Audrey, for a second, because unfortunately, this world is close to, to me as well. My, my sister lost her son. Um, and it's just, my sister always says it's a, a, an organization or a club or a, a group that you just really don't want to be a part of, but belong to the survivors of homicide. Right. But you are. And I, I don't think I've been at, you know, uh, an international convention for compassionate friends, which is an organization for people who have lost a child or a grandchild or a sibling only. And I don't think that the way you and your family handled it is the average or, or normal response to, to band together and to say, we're not going to blame each other. We're not going to try and find blame for this. This just is. We're not going to carry anger and bitterness and hatred in our heart because what else would you want to do when you lose something so precious to you, but to blame and to find, you know, a, an outlet of, uh, I'm just going to, you know, be as miserable as, as my daughter or my, my, my son's existence can't be right. Can't be anymore. So I find that fascinating when you said that you were somebody who always looks for the positive and is grateful for what they have and not what they don't have. It sounds to me like you were super grateful that you had Elizabeth for as long as you had Elizabeth in your life and that you still have her with you every day, that you know she is with you, lifting you up and being the wind beneath your wings. And I just want to commend you for that because not only was that probably super hard for you, but I bet it was even harder for Leslie and Bruce to um, rally around you who might not have the same kind of... It was a different... Everybody had a different dynamic. Right, right. And relationship. Leslie lost her best friend. Right. Yeah. And and why wouldn't you want to reach out and, and lash out at the person who, who made that happen? So he is serving a 42-year sen sentence and we're serving a lifetime sentence. Mm -hmm. So would you like me to tell you what happened next? Yes, please. Yes. Okay. Well, it was several months, maybe a year. I was part of a running group, the Hartford Brunch Bunch. It was a, uh, a branch of the Hartford Track Club that broke off. And the, we women meet uh, for 25 years, 7 a.m. Saturday mornings. And we either block out a three-mile or a five-mile loop and either train together or those that walk, walk, or those that can't just show up for breakfast. And I was out uh, on a run because I, I needed as many endorphins as I could. And, and it was hard to get one foot in front of the other. However, I have incredible support groups around me from all around me, which is uh, a gift in itself. 
So I was at my friend Kathy Scotty's house and she had all these books on her kitchen table that she was studying and they were all on integrative health and healing and all different modalities of um, holistic medicine. She's a, a nurse and she was studying different levels of Reiki and all kinds of things. And it was the first time in a very, very long time that I looked at her books and I said, what are you studying? I need to do this. And she told me about the graduate program that you can put together and create your own program of studies, your own internships and your own externships. And you put it together and you get a master's degree. I said, I have to do this. I felt like a magnet was pulling inside of me that I needed answers for how, how am I going to get through this? I went home and I said to my husband, I want to go to graduate school. He said, today, now, like right now. And I said, <laughs> I have to do this and no one's going to stop me. So I said, would you go in the car with me and drive to the Graduate Institute and meet Bud Stone and learn a little bit more about this? And I learned on the roster that Dr. Bernie Siegel was indeed a mentor and teacher there. So I wrote him a long letter and I explained everything, why I needed to do this. And he wrote back and he said he lives in Woodbridge, which is just 45 minutes south of where I live. And he said, get a legal pad and uh, show up at my house Friday afternoon at one o'clock <laughs> and uh, I will be your mentor and we'll work together. So my feet didn't hit the ground. I was reeling with excitement that not only was I going to go back to school and I didn't even know what I was going to do, my programs, I trusted the process. Show up at his house and I, and I said to him, I have um, a, a list of questions. What's your first question? Well, I said, can people be born evil? Mm. He shook his head vehemently. Absolutely not. It's in the absence of love that people do bad things. Uh, I said, uh, I believe you 98%, but there's 2% that I don't think so, because there's Norm Sheely and another doctor that spoke at Yale. And he said, there's something in this DNA that makes people evil. And I said, I don't know. I believe you. I believe in the app. I believe that. But I got to be honest with you. I'm questioning you. He said, it's terrific because your first assignment is to go to the prison system and ask the prisoners yourself if they were loved. Wow. I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he said, what's your next question? I said, this word forgiveness, I can't do it. I can't say it. I, I could say it when my brother pulled my ponytail and was mean to me and, and, and did bad things, but I can't, I can't use that word now because it just doesn't, it's not working for me. However, I'm smart enough to know that I can't live with bitterness, anger, and hatred because it will manifest. It'll take me down. He wins and I lose and I'll die probably before him. He says, you need a new word. I said, I do. He said, well, you're going to be the token Jew in an all-Christian pastoral counseling program with Reverend <laughs> Henderson at Mount Sinai Hospital in Hartford. I said, yay. <laughs> he said, I'll call him. He says, I'll give him a heads up. You're going, you're going to start classes in a few weeks. I said, you're kidding. Just like that. He said, what's your third question? <laughs> oh, I said, I need to know your mantras. I said, what words do you truly live by every day? He said, it sounds so simple and it's not so easy because we tend to be nurturers. You have to do what makes you happy. A lot of what you do makes other people happy. What do you do that makes you happy? So we talked about music and the animals and all the things that I love to do. 
And he said, if you were to carve out no less than 10% of the day, what is it that you do? You get lost in time. That's his definition of meditation. He said, I don't sit and say, um, I don't do that. He says, whatever you do where you get lost in time is his definition of meditation. Some people call that flow, right? They call that being in flow, right? Where you you lose track of time and you don't even think about eating. You, you, the annoyance of having to go to the bathroom is just like overwhelming. Like, just let me be what I'm doing. right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So he said, you, you need to carve out no less than 10% of the day and find that place. And he said, make a list. He says, well, give me, give me a few right now. I said, would be music. I play piano. I could sit and get lost in time and I just get into the music and, and I don't even know what time it is. And I said, I tell me more of what you do every day, your, your habits, your, your what, what, it, what it is that keeps you alive and flowing. He said, you have to understand that all the answers we seek come from within. You already know them, but we deny them. We are overshadowed by them. We're afraid of them. We deny them. And he said, what you need to do is unplug and go for a walk because all the answers come from within. And when you struggle, you'll find them in nature. And he said, you can go on the same walk and see something different every day. And I want you to pay attention to that and understand that you will find all your answers. And he gave me a metaphor and he took me for a walk around his neighborhood. And there was this flowing brook. And in this brook that would be kind of windy were rocks as one would expect. And he said, those rocks represent the obstacles in our lives. The water always finds its way around those rocks. Even with attrition and even with weathering, no matter storm, whatever, the water will always find its way around those rocks. However, we're connected to nature. We can expect that the seasons will fall one into the next and trust the process and understand that winter will come and it will freeze up and we all get stuck just like the water freezes up and we don't go anywhere. But we need to trust the process. The sun will come out and little by little, the water will find its way. And you need to understand that you will get stuck and you won't know your way, but you have to be patient and know that it's going to work out and you will find your way even if it's not the same way. And when he told me that when life throws you a curveball, that God is merely redirecting you. Mm. You're being redirected and to follow that path because the path you were on isn't working. What a great visualization that yeah. is. Like what a great way to look at that. The brook. To say, oh my God, this was thrown at me so I could go in the right direction rather than what is going on, <laughs> right? Yeah. So do you want to hear what happens next? <laughs> yes. This is so incredible. I, I've written about this and it's, it's, it's incredible. Well, I said to him, what books can you recommend for me? Because I need more answers. I need to understand how you, how you live your life and what books have been ingrained in you so that you, you're, no one can, you don't question it ever. So he took me into this little library that he has, and he had like a Home Depot little ladder, step ladder. And he, now he's approaching 90. Currently, right. I can't keep up with him. All right. Great. Again, this is a number of years ago, but not, nonetheless, he climbs up the ladder and in this little room, floor to ceiling books. And if you were 
just to imagine to take one book out, they would all come out because they're squished together and there's no rhyme or reason. They're all out of order because he has everything he's ever collected ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) For real. (laughs) So on one of the bookshelves, he climbs up and it's Thornton Wilder's copy of Bridges of San Rui Ray. And it's held together by a rubber band that's disintegrating because the binding, the glue has disintegrated. Mm. The book is yellowed. It's old. It's old. (laughs) And he throws me the book. He says, guard that with your life. I said, you just threw it at me because I'm on the floor and he's up. (laughs) So he said, what I need you to do is read the last few pages, but mostly the last paragraph. And to paraphrase, because I asked him, what does he live by? And he said to me, he said, these are the words I live by, and this is what is going to keep you alive. I said, tell me. He said, love is eternal. This is in the book. Love is eternal. There is the land of the living and the land of the dead. And that bridge is love. At the end of the day, all that matters is love. It never dies. Then he grabbed Dan Millman and Schultz and Nietzsche and all these books. And he put them in a big basket with a handle like Little Red Riding Hood. And as we're walking out together, he says, so your assignment for next week when you return next Friday is a book report on all these books. I said, you're kidding me. Oh my God. (laughs) And he said, I'm joking. I said, (laughs) okay. So remember his first assignment? He told me to go to the prison. Yeah. To go to the prison system and then to study pastoral account with guess what happened? I hop. So I, we, we say our goodbyes. And I, I don't know if I told you this before he taught me how to hug properly. I was <laughs> hugging just right. I thought, but he said, you could do a lot better. Do you want your hugs to have meaning? I said, of course. He said, well, it has to be heart to heart. So when you hug someone, you say to them, may I give you a hug of love and healing? No one has ever said no to me. Oh, who would say no to that? I wouldn't say no to that. So your heart goes heart to heart and you hug them. And I put my hand on the back of their head and I, I just tell them I'm giving you a hug of love and healing. Oh, and I pause and you can feel it. So we hug, I get in my car, my feet, I'm reeling. There's no radio on. I've got these books next to me. I got my scribble pad. I have my assignments and I'm saying, I just spent a whole afternoon with Bernie Siegel this incredible legend. And he's given me these incredible assignments. What the heck? Right. Are you ready for here to hear what happened next? Yes. It's beyond. Well, I'm driving down the Merritt Parkway on the most gorgeous blue day, sunny skies, but strategically placed big white puffy clouds. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm driving down uh, northbound and I had to pull over because my eyes filled up with tears and something happened. It was written in the sky. I swear to God. There were two giant cumulus clouds far apart, the land of the living and the land of the dead. And connecting those were a, was a bridge. You know, when you put your hands in the sand and you draw lines? Yes. Or, or the top of a music, the, the treble clef, you see the five lines? Yes. yes. There were five lines, like someone put their hand in the sky with the clouds and drew five lines, the, the land of the living and the land of the dead. And it was in the sky for me to see. That's cool. Yeah, that's that's cool. so cool. I pulled over and I was blown away. And I, 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 um, I had to breathe in calm. I had to breathe in. Don't question this. Don't ever question your intuition. Never. And that's another big part of who I am. Well, mm-hmm. once I was able to compose myself and I saw that it was written in the sky and to never question, I get in to my driveway, pulled into the drive, into my um, garage. 
And I could hear my um, home phone going beep, beep, beep. Someone left a message, push the button. Audrey Carlson, this is Susie Hineker calling from the Brooklyn prison in Brooklyn, Connecticut. I got your name from the survivors of homicide. Our speaker for tomorrow afternoon and our voices program canceled. Can you please come in tomorrow afternoon and tell your story? Wow. Oh my God. Had you told your story before, Audrey? Yes. You ha- before that particular time, because you said this was only a year after your daughter passed, right? This is uh, maybe even two years. Okay. Okay. Because I was in my study. Yeah, it was. It, it could be two years because the first year, it was about two years later. Okay. Well, I couldn't believe the message on my phone. <laughs> so I immediately called Bernie and I said, seriously, no, really. The land of the living and the land of the dead was in the sky. And I told him what I saw. And then when I got home, I got my second assignment within an hour of leaving your house. He said, didn't I tell you that I, when I was a little boy, I choked on a toy and I had a near-death experience. I died and I met the chairman of the board and I'm not talking Frank Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I met God and he said, it's not your time. Go back. You have work to do. You have a lot of work to do. I was a little boy. He said, I put it out there for you. He says, I guess it worked pretty quick. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. So took a deep breath and I said, holy smokes, what the heck? Well, what happened next was I got my, another assignment from school and it was a Buddhist prayer. It was called, um, the, the, uh, the beginner's mind, I believe it's the beginner's mind. And I can't remember the whole, the whole prayer, but it was something like no judgment, no expectations, only love, no judgment, no expectations, only love. And I used those three phrases for my mantra to get me through the night into the next day, because I didn't know how I was going to go to this prison and not actually see Jonathan, who killed my daughter, even though he wasn't at that prison. I was going to look at these 50 guys in orange jumpsuits with shaved heads and try not to see him. Mm. So I drove there and I sat myself on one of those big tables and I let my legs dangle and it just seemed to be the most comfortable place for me. I brought no notes. I brought nothing. And I said to these guys, listen, here's the deal. I didn't know I was coming until yesterday. I don't know if I'm coming back and I don't know if you want me to come back, but I have questions and I'm doing this as an assignment for school. And I'm going to tell you my story and I'm going to ask you some questions, but I'm also smart enough to know that. Perhaps you don't know what the truth really is. So I told them my story. And then I told them also how when Elizabeth was shot to death, one of our poodles ran out the front door, terrified. And the other, um, a lady, uh, Giselle, she laid on top of Elizabeth and wouldn't let her die alone. And she laid on top of her until the police came and she wouldn't leave her. Mm. So one of the prisoners began to sob. He was the youngest of them all, of the 50. And I said, tell me why you're crying. And he got permission from his higher up. And he said, well, when I was growing up, my father uh, ended up uh, getting killed in a gang fight. And my brother uh, is serving time for selling drugs in prison. And my mother begged me to stay out of trouble so that she wouldn't have to have another loss. Mm. And And I kept my promise. And he said, until everything in my life shifted, he said, you have to understand, I, I was all alone. I had nobody. I didn't have a brother. I didn't have a dad. And I was coming home from school one day, high school. And um, 
this dog followed me and the doggy followed me every day and just kept coming home with me. And he became my best friend. I didn't have anyone. And he said it gave me without him being fancy with his words, he gave him meaning and purpose in his life. He had someone else to care for and they cared for, they rescued each other in essence. Mm. And he said, then one day the dog got sick. The dog got cancer. He had to bring him to the vet and he needed money. He sold money. Uh, he sold drugs on the, on the corner. He got caught in his senior year. He ended up going to jail and he said, he's got a few years to, he says, but the dog saved me. We saved each other. And that's why I'm crying. He says, because I love my dog. Well, it was pretty powerful. So what did I do with these, these prisoners? I said to them, how many of you have children? Of the 50 men, 25 hands go up. How many of you love your children? All hands went up. How many of your children love you back? Half. Wow. The hands went up. Wow. How many of you are in a program to break the cycle of violence in your lives? And how many believe you can? Only two hands went up. Then I asked them, how many of you really, truly, truly believe you are loved? The hands went up and down and up and down. They didn't know how to answer that question. Mm. Bernie was right. They didn't know how to answer that question. Well, at that point, my time was up and I went home. And within a few days, I got invitations from all of them to come back. They wanted to talk more about this love stuff. I went back for uh, several weeks and we talked more. And what I came up with was that Bernie was right. I still have a 2% question in my mind that I, I still live in that place of wonder. Uh, however, in the absence of love, bad things do happen. Then I ended up studying this pastoral counseling program. And I went in saying, I need, I need another word for forgiveness. And the Buddhist concept of letting go resonated with me deeply because what I was doing is I, after Elizabeth was killed, I went, I, I had severe anxiety mm. and I had trouble breathing and without breathing, you're not going to live or you're not going to fill yourself with what you really need. And I learned with a therapist and with Bernie and with all the people that came into my life that really understood. They taught me and I learned myself how to breathe into the count of six, what I need and breathe out what I need to get rid of. Breathe in what I need and breathe out what I need to get rid of. And these were the tools that kept me alive because I had severe PTSD and I had severe anxiety. And it was really critical for me to do this. And I still do because stuff, life uh, resurfaces, pain and all, all kinds of trauma comes back. Well, so I learned how to do this. And then finally, I had something that really shifted in my life where I really needed to let it go. So I envisioned putting Jonathan in a giant bubble, taking a deep breath and throwing him out to the universe. And I said to God, if it indeed it is true that we are all your children, I'm giving them back to you. You can have them. I let him go. I just blew him out into the universe and let him go. And whatever happens to him happens. And the minute I let him go, I felt this, uh, this heavy weight and I felt my stomach ease up and I felt my whole body shift into a place that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't hold on to it anymore. Mm. Don't forget, we were in a civil uh, trial. We went through several years of court cases because he kept appealing, saying he really didn't do it. And oh, my you know, goodness, he actually thought he had a, uh, a leg to stand on with that one. He said, he basically said, after Elizabeth broke up with him, if I can't have her, nobody can. And he, you know, 
obviously wasn't thinking because as a valedictorian in top of his class in Trinity and in vet school, he was a, an excellent clinician and um, veterinarian, and he had a, his life in front of him. And now he's sitting in jail for the next 22 years. So he has a 42-year sentence. I had to find a way of how I was going to be redirected, how I was going to fill my life and not be defined by what happened. I didn't want to be that person that people would point and say, oh, her, her daughter was murdered. I wanted to be much more than that. We all are. We, it's not so much that we wear different hats. We are so many different things. We're sisters, we're, we're mothers and wives and friends and mentors and clinicians. And uh, there's, so, there's so much more to us. And that, that is not who I am. And if I were to imagine what would be on my gravestone as a legacy, it would be her legacy is her love. I want to be remembered as being loving because at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters? You know, I don't want to be thought of as different crises that happen in our lives, rather how we've made choices. And I had, we all had to make that choice that day when the towel flew up in the air and landed at our feet. And I said, we have a choice here and now. I don't know if we'll ever laugh again. I don't know when we're going to be, I don't even know if the word happiness, even the the thought of it didn't even resonate with me. It was impossible to think like that. I could barely breathe. I could barely hold myself up. And for one year, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't remember the seasons turning one into another at all. I have no memory of that first year. Audrey, don't you think your season was winter that whole year? You were in winter. Even though I was in winter, I was stuck. Spring and summer and fall were coming. Your life was in winter. You're right. I was frozen, stuck, solid, couldn't move. Right. And you know what I had to do every day? I had to concentrate really, really hard on breathing. Breathing. Can you imagine just having the mindful practice of learning how to breathe again? I couldn't do anything else. I I walked in circles. You know how dogs look like they're walking in circles and they just, I did. I just walked in circles for a long, long time, a very long time. How do you think you got to spring again? How did you get through your winter and get to spring? Spring is hard because Elizabeth's birthday is April 25th and the day she was killed is May 22nd. So I would guess I would have to pass spring and go into summer uh, because and I mean that figuratively, Audrey. Like, oh, I know, I know, I know. But spring is a real thing for you too. The time when life yeah, is coming yeah. back up is a time for you to be reminded of the most tragic death and loss in your life. So spring literally sounds like it's hard for you, but also like that first... But it's a rebirth. Yeah, that first winter after Elizabeth was murdered and you were stuck... How how long was winter? Was it one year? Was it two years? Was it three years before you saw spring again and you started to see a rebirth and, and be able to be happy again? I don't know. Maybe you've never thought about it. About two years. About two years. And how, do you, what, is it conscious of how you got there? Do you remember when winter became spring? I don't remember. I don't remember uh, how, even, how I even got to the funeral. I don't remember that year. I remember uh, different like different things that may have gotten me through with people that rallied around me, uh, keep me active outside. They got me outside a lot. And I remember it was about a year and a half, almost two years, two years. uh, I couldn't sit at the piano because my tears would, I didn't want to ruin the keys. And I remember a patient came into my office and she was in her eighties 
and she was taking piano lessons. And she was taking piano lessons from a woman that was local to me here who's in her 90s. And she said, well, you're not playing the piano anymore? I said, I, I, I can see Elizabeth. Elizabeth danced and was in the performing arts. And I could just, all the music just triggered heartache. Right. And I struggled and I couldn't do it. And so she said, I said, I, 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 I miss it, miss it. So I called this piano teacher and I remember sobbing on the phone, pouring my heart out to her. She says, come to my house tomorrow. Don't bring anything at all. Just come. So I went to her house and she put music in front. She said, have you ever played this Brahms piece before? I said, never. She said, good. That's where we'll start. We're going to start with music that holds no meaning for you. Great. And we're going to start all over again. And I worked with her for about six months until I could dare to go back to the pieces that would normally rip my heart out. And it took me a very long time. And um, after it all happened, you need to also know another piece that Elizabeth and Leslie, our daughters, being a year apart, Elizabeth applied for scholarships for the performing arts in college and virtually none existed. And she said, it's really, really unfair that our society looks upon the kids who shoot hoops that get the full rides and we get nothing. And one day I'll be successful and I'll find a way for kids like me to get a scholarship. Leslie, our other daughter, who's 6'4", got a full ride to GW and didn't get burdened with student loans and Elizabeth did. So when this happened, we established the Elizabeth Ann Carlson Performing Arts Foundation. So we've had 20 years of all these kids that have come into our lives and have built our family from a different way. That's so great. And it brings, and it brings us a lot of joy. The kids are in Hamilton and Cabaret, the Rockettes, they're in the Santa Fe Opera, they're writing scripts for Hollywood. These are the cream of the crop kids. And that brings us a great deal of joy. And so I have also understand that life has little meaning without love. Hmm. And we all need meaning and purpose to move forward. And one of the books that I'd like to recommend to anybody who wonders how how to get through life when everything that you've ever touched and loved, just like in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world where they have their own holocausts. Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah. He uh, survived the Holocaust as a psychologist and he found a way to live his life. And, and Bernie, I want to just give you one of other uh, Bernie's mantras, which I use every day. And I share this with people because I counsel people that are from the survivors of homicide until we are dead. Don't act like you're dying. Mm, I love that. When I got diagnosed with ovarian cancer, Bernie said, don't, until you're dead, don't act like you're dying. You're fine. You're alive. I love that. I love that. Until you're dead, don't act like you're dying. And, you know, a lot of people are, are they complain, they kvetch, they, you know, they get a head cold, they got this. I said, are you dying? Right. Can you walk? Can you talk? Does anybody have to to clean your bottom? Right. Do you are you on a breathing tube? Can you eat on your on your own? Can you drive your own car? Yeah. You have nothing to complain about. And Audrey, would you say it's true also? Like I have maybe some people in my life that will get hung up. Like I'm just going to use my mom an example. My, I love my mom, and my mom loves her children like you love your children. Of course. And she will. If something is wrong with one of her children, one of us, it's a catastrophe. We're going to die. The world's going to end. And, and, and it's not like that. So would you also say until 
others are dead don't act like they're dying. Would you would you extend it to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And say, hey, don't get yourself in that negative headspace kind of thing. Right. And and kind of because it, it'll take you down even if you're projecting it on others. That's right. Good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And was it not Viktor Frankl who said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that even though he was a Holocaust survivor and he was in a concentration camp being abused by his captors, he said he was happier than his captors were. That he was able, isn't it him that said that he was able to hold a space in his mind that they couldn't touch, that he Mm -hmm. was able to, you know, make himself happy, but he felt like his captors didn't have that ability to control their beliefs and their mindset. But he was somehow able to do that even in the... Yeah. No one can steal your thoughts or your soul. Yeah. Yeah. Audrey, I have a question for you. You, I know you've been, your story, you say you've told your story um, to groups over the years. And it's my understanding you've been published also like two different books. One is Love, Animals, and Miracles, and that's by uh, Bernie Siegel, correct? Yes. And the other one is Grief Diaries, Surviving Loss by Homicide. And I'm sorry, it escapes me. I don't know who wrote that, but I think Linda Chelidin, something like that. And so did you write up your story and submit it to them? Or did they write your story with your help um, telling your story? I wrote the story. Okay. Uh, The one with Bernie, I think was three years or four years ago where he uh, was he was telling me he was putting a collaborative collection of people's personal stories of healing and the relationships that they had with their pets. And he said, do you have a story that you'd like to be considered? He says, I have an editor and publishers. And he says, it's not up to him. Uh, It's up to them. He says, but if you have a powerful story that you want to share, it cannot be more than 1000 words. I said, okay, that's not so easy. No, (laughs) (laughs) right. Uh 1000 words. Not one more, not one less, right? Well, I I do have a story. And if you'd like, I'll tell you the story. Yes, please. This is an incredible story, uh, very powerful and profound. And I have to tell you, it's um, it was chosen by Bernie immediately and his publishers. So uh, it's in Love, Animals, and Miracles. The story is, it's called The Bridge is Love. Got it. Got it. It sounds like a recurring theme in your life. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, early on in our in our marriage, we uh, Bruce and I uh, had uh, obviously Elizabeth and Leslie, and we had uh, a female. We had Giselle and Charlie Girl, our two standard poodles. And Bruce was uh, we always had family votes, and we you know he'd get outvoted all the time. Outvoted. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, I'm always outvoted and outgendered. He said, if I had a boy dog. I'd have four extra paws and I might stand a chance. (laughs) So that was the joke. That was the joke for years and years and years. And Elizabeth always paid attention to it. I didn't realize how much she paid attention to it. So it was three weeks before she was killed. It was Charlie Girl that had to go to Ann Fisher, who is our breeder. She breeds cells, shows, and boards standard poodles. So we've been with her 45 years. So Elizabeth, we asked her to bring Charlie Girl, the big white uh, poodle, to uh, get her uh, spa day, to get her hair cut and et cetera. So Elizabeth dutifully drove to Ann Fisher's house. We called her Dr. Poolittle. 
Elizabeth <laughs> brings in the doggy and uh, Ann Fisher says, Elizabeth, guess what? Upstairs, we got puppies. We had a litter of puppies. She doesn't breed a lot, only a few times a year. Elizabeth runs upstairs. She picks up all the puppies to look to see if one of them has boy parts because boy parts and girl parts are different. <laughs> <laughs> so she picks up the last puppy and it's a little boy this big. She hugs him and she says, Anne, I've, I've saved up some money, not enough. I'll pay you back. But daddy's been wanting a boy dog always, forever. Can I get him for daddy? It's his birthday coming up. Oh, Elizabeth, mm. I'm really sorry. He's spoken for my friend Bonnie's going to take him and he's going to be bred to be uh, not a surface dog, a pet therapy dog. He's very smart. And Elizabeth, it was a moot point. There was nothing to be said at all. All right. And three weeks later, our lives changed forever. A year later, I said to Bruce, as I'm exploring the intangible, invisible spirit world that I still was trying to understand and figure out, I said to him, he, my husband, an engineer, sees the world black and white, mechanical engineer. It's like this or it's like this. Mm -hmm. There's no gray. <laughs> there's no data. There's nothing to support the evidence that all of what you think is out there is real. I have no idea what you're talking about, but if it's going to give you comfort and, and help you get through life, bless you. I love you, whatever it takes. And I said to Bruce, would you ever consider inviting Elizabeth into a dream? Well, how do I do that? I said, you just talk to her. You just say, Elizabeth, come to me in a dream. He says, just like that. I said, I'll do it for you. <laughs> Elizabeth, come to daddy in a dream. 3 a.m. is the magical hour that our loved ones come to us. And I said, metaphorically speaking, almost like hit him over the head with a frying pan so that when he wakes up, he knows the dream was real. And you can do this. I need you to do this. Six months later or thereabouts, 3 a.m., he wakes up in the middle of the night, rattled, totally rattled, like sitting up straight, totally. He said, Elizabeth came to me in a dream and, and, and she came to me in the backyard uh, because Bruce found a way to get through his grief by bulldozing the backyard and rebuilding the backyard like, like you're in a, like in a big park. It's gorgeous. A new wall, everything, just magnificent. And the sod had just gotten down. And in his dream, Elizabeth has holding this little black poodle puppy. Oh, and it's a boy dog. And she says, Daddy, I have a gift for you. Your life is going to change. And when it changes, you're going to be gifted from me with love, the little boy dog you've been wanting all these years, but it won't come to you until your life changes. They hugged. They, ex they exchanged words of love. They held each other. He woke up and, and, and she put the puppy down and he's holding the puppy and he's holding Elizabeth and he wakes up and, 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 and he's repeating it over and over and over when his life changes in the dog and he held Elizabeth and it was real. And I felt her and she talked to me and he kept saying it over and over and over. Couldn't go back to sleep. And the next day he said, well, when do you think my life is going to change? I said, I don't know. Again, trust the process. Mm. Well, eight months to a year later, maybe less. I can't remember. Again, I can't remember exactly. It was some time. My mother's health was failing. She was in Florida. So we had to board our dogs with Ann Fisher again. And um, we flew down to Florida, come back, go to Ann Fisher's house to pick up Giselle and Charlie, the two girls, the females. And in her house, all these other standard poodles, there were a dozen of them, woof, 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 what? like barking, 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 all excited, jumping up and down. There's company, there's company. And the Ann Fisher goes, 
and she's and and um uh short of her uh, with a whistle you remember uh sound of music when yeah. the captain blew the yes. whistle it, yeah all the dogs lined up <laughs> and sat still and didn't move except for one one dog wouldn't listen and that one dog ran and ran and ran, jumped in Bruce's lap, put his two paws on his shoulders and put his big furry face in Bruce's face. And the dog started to cry and to sob. Oh. Bruce started to cry and to sob. I said, what's going on here? And Ann Fisher's crying. She said, I should have told you. I should have told you. It's validated. I never will question it ever again. I don't know why I didn't tell you. I should have told. What are you talking about? <laughs> Three weeks before Elizabeth was killed, she came to me, dropped and she picked out a puppy and the, the puppy went to my friend, Bonnie, and he became a therapy dog. He, can, he sniffs out cancer. He's a brilliant dog. Well, Bonnie went through a divorce and she gave me the dog uh, just this week and he's up for adoption. He's the same dog that Elizabeth chose. The oh same dog that came to Bruce in the dream was in his lap. Oh my goodness. Take me home. And he was crying. Oh my goodness. That's the story in Bernie Siegel's book. So Ian Fisher wow. put a collar on him, handed us all his papers and his accomplishments. He came home, he ran upstairs and jumped on Bruce's side of the bed and never left him until he died a few years ago. Oh Aww. my goodness. Oh my goodness. So that is the power of believing that the spirit world is real and all that matters is love. And when Elizabeth said your life, and Bruce did retire at that point, uh, uh, his life did shift. My mother's, my mother's health, uh, was failing. And this doggy came into our lives to bring us meaning and purpose and love. And that all that matters at the end of the day is that bridge of love. Wow. True story. Audrey, that is such a great story. And so all the, all the things that we think are, like you said, intangible, and we don't really think they're out there. They are. We energy just doesn't disappear. Mm -hmm. There's a few other things I want to just make for whoever else listens to this and needs some guidance. I just need you to know that gratitude paves the way to happiness. Mm. And without starting your day out with gratitude and looking at what you can do not and not what you can't and what you have is critical. Is It's really critical. And, and asking for help and, and having people rally around you and being uh, very grateful for the people that come into your life to, to help you through and, and to trust the fact that we do have all the answers from within. We really do. And a lot of us are afraid to look, look inside. Yeah. It can be a dark, scary place to look inside sometimes. Yeah. 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 Music is a, a big thing for me. I'm just looking at some of the bullet points here. And see, I usually just go by the seat of my pants. I don't read from anything. I If you don't know your own story, we got a problem. Right? That's true. <laughs> and that's the truth. It's probably not your story if you can't remember it or, <laughs> yeah. or express yeah. it, right? It's probably the story you think you're supposed to live. So ask me questions. Do you have any questions for me? Gosh, Audrey, you like, I feel like you summed up, like, if I were to say in, in the question I would ask you, I feel like you've already answered, like, what would you tell someone who is going through what you're going through? How would you help them get through this awful winter stuck season that they're going to be in? for who knows how long. And I feel like you can tell me if if this is what you would say. I feel like you've said it to us. One, don't blame anybody. 
don't don't hold on to hatred and anger and bitterness. It's not going to serve you well. Two, just let yourself go through this process. You have to go through it. You can't force it. You can't stop it. You can't skip over any of the steps. Nope. You can't skip it. Look for your support system and understand that you're going to need to lean on others and let them love you and let them help you and love yourself. I feel like you also said, you know, being grateful to make sure that you know that you are, you can choose how to be and how to think and how to, you know, move forward. You get to write your own story is what you said. And how are you going to show up in that story? Are you going to show up angry and hated, you know, hate with hate in your heart? Are you going to show up loving? And then not to have any judgment or expectations, just love the Buddha kind of prayer, I guess, is what you call that. Yeah, the beginner's prayer. Yeah. And I, the beginner's mind. And I love, I love that. And then decide how you want to be defined and remembered. How is it that you, yourself, like with your capital S self, Audrey, Patty, Kara, want to be remembered? And there's going to be shit that happens to us. And sometimes having your daughter murdered is one of the most awful things I think a human being can go through. And we all go through terrible things. And how do you want to be remembered going through that terrible thing? We interviewed another woman who lost her son. He was killed in a motorcycle accident. And she said the same thing. I had to decide how I wanted to show up in my life and how I wanted others to see me. I had to decide how I wanted to be. And it was a conscious decision. So I think that's what you would say. But did I sum that up or do you have more to add? You for did. That? You, you summed it up. It, it's also a survival skill. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's a survival skill along with finding a sense of humor. Uh, without that, you're not going to survive. You know, um, you'll make it through, but you it, it won't be a full life and you will be robbing yourself. And and. I've also learned not to use the word, but unless I have to, rather I use the word and, and yes, the, and, and that Tal Ben-Shahar, who I did the positive psychology program with Maria Seurat, Mm -hmm. give yourself permission to be human. Right. Yeah. And to be gentle with yourself. It's okay. Audrey, did you at some point find, and this is for listeners who may have be going through the same thing. Did you find a support group that was helpful for you? I know it sounds like you did a lot of work, you know, looking in inward. I did. I did. Okay. Can you share that please? Yes. I had, we had the survivors of homicide. A lot of people that have come before me walked us through the criminal justice system and the, the support system of, there were people that could possibly understand what we were going through because uh, they haven't been there. And you, what you don't want someone to say is, you know, she's in a better place, or I understand what you're going through because you really don't. And you don't want to have, you don't want to be inconsiderate or certainly use the wrong inappropriate language with people. So you needed to, you needed to find your people. You needed to find people that understood you. And I also, sought out people from different religions that could give me insight in terms of how they got through. I I met a rabbi, Okalika, who was very much like Viktor Frankl. He climbed out from a a pile of dead bodies. His whole family and his village were brutally murdered, and they were tossed in a big grave. 
And he climbed out and he said, if I'm alive, then I need to live. And I met a Buddhist monk and I met um, different people from different, all different religions. And the same theme came through love and not to hold on to anger and bitterness because it will define you. And then you won't even like yourself Right. and how, how to find your way. So I sought out people from everywhere. And, uh, but I also knew that it was going to take a long, long time. It was just going to take a long, long time. And uh, for everybody, it's very different. I'm working with a family right now who a woman and her husband, they, they have three boys and two were, two were dead. One was killed by a cousin in West Virginia at 15. And the other son was in um, law school struggling with depression. And he had a few beers one night and he had an aneurysm and he died. Oh. So here's a woman of this, this young, this couple here in West Hartford, whose two boys were two years apart and they're both dead. Oh God, that's heartbreaking. And so I'm working with her and, it, and I don't walk in her shoes. I didn't lose two kids. And all we can do is the best we can do. And it not only has to be good enough, it's pretty darn wonderful. Right. Right. Give ourselves a little compassion like we would others. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This has been awesome. And it has been awesome. And I, I really appreciate your stories, um, you know, your, that, that tell the entire story of your life thus far. But I, I will say that um, I was on the verge of tears several times, but also laughing several times. You tell a really good story. I mean, you're a, you're you. a good storyteller, I should say. And thank you. And you add some humor in there. Thank you. And um, you have to, yeah. I mean, you know, otherwise, how, how are we going to get through? And Audrey, for our listeners who might have just, you know, recently um, had a tragedy like you've experienced. I know from your story now, hearing it today, that you probably didn't find laughter and humor right away. And although, and I'm, I imagine it, that maybe you thought you maybe would never laugh again at some point right after Elizabeth was murdered. Can you just speak to that a little bit, like yes. what that process was? Because I think that despair sometimes can bring us down the wrong path and maybe holding on to the fact that it will be different. It can be different. We need to make it different. It's a pro That, again, is a long process because initially uh, you're in raw grief and you feel like you're caught in a riptide where you don't even know if you're up or down, let alone breathing. And the thought of anything the word happiness doesn't even enter into the galaxy, let alone humor. However, little by little, things will happen that you'll want to laugh and then you feel guilty. Uh, right. Oh. Right. You can't be. How could you be happy? Right. How dare I? How dare I feel happy? And there'll be times where you want to resume what you think is the new normal and you feel guilty that how dare I? I don't have a daughter and and and. And how, how could I even dare to think that I could go out and meet a friend or do anything? And then little by little, you start to give yourself an inch or two and you give yourself permission to let yourself laugh. And then you realize that laughter is a release. Uh, it's, it's almost medi it's medicinal. And you and you start little little bit at a time, just a little bit. It doesn't happen quickly. It's a very slow process. And little by little, your friends want you to laugh and they want you to see, even if you have that moment where you just allow yourself to laugh and just have that escape, you realize it felt good. 
And it takes a long time. Mm-hmm. How do you, how did you get rid of the guilt feeling? How did you decide that it's okay for me to laugh and it's okay for me to be happy? And maybe Elizabeth would want me to be happy. Well, that was just it. Our family, my husband and my daughter said, do you really think she wants you to be miserable and, and to feel, be in this darkness all the time? She wants you to laugh and be happy and, 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 find, and find your way. And little by little, I, I said, you're right. You're right. And it, it slowly happens because you realize you need it desperately for survival. It's almost a survival key that you give yourself permission. You open the key a little bit and, and you just start. And it's really hard to even remember. It took a very long time. Yeah. I'm very proud of you, Audrey. Thank you. Very proud of you. This was, this was wonderful. And I, and you know how I said before, how we lose sight of time. Yes. Yeah. I, I did. I lost sight. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Audrey was gracious enough to have us offer her email address. If anybody would like to get in touch with her, if anybody is um, grieving or just has, you know, I help people all the time and uh, it's what I, I choose to do. So I'm give them my email and my cell phone number. And we hear your wagging tail dog is back in the house. Yay. Say hello. I know your doggies are home. (laughs) Audrey's email address is AudreyABC77 at gmail.com. So it's A-U-D-R-E-Y-A-B-C-7-7 at gmail.com. And Audrey, please give everyone your cell phone number too, please, because I don't have it in front of me. Of course, 860-841-5894. Thank you. That is very nice of you. Yep, it's very generous. And also the Happiness Club, the Hartford Happiness Club is is on Zoom and open to anyone who wants to tap in the first Thursday of the month. We'd be delighted to have you aboard. Awesome. So the Hartford Happiness Club, is it is that the website as well? Yeah. The Hartford Happiness Club.com. I think it's Hartford Happiness Club. Okay. Hartford Happiness. Sorry, I don't know why I can't. Hartford Happiness Club.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Audrey. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Audrey. You're welcome. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara. And Patty. But I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say and let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see you be brave. I just want to see you. I just want to see you. Just want to see you. I want to see you be brave. So, does you're going to have to have some chit chat here while I do this. Hold that story. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It, LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com.